All right, well, uh, what I'm going to do tonight is uh, kind of blend what we've been doing with getting back into Paul's letters. So we're going to talk about uh, the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians <laughs> and kind of give a, uh, if you want an overview of 2 Corinthians, I don't know if you can, f- if you, uh, you can go back when we did it in like 2018 or so. There's a teaching, a one-week teaching on 2 Corinthians. If you want to do that, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, So I didn't want to do just another one-week overview. I did want to just look at, it's really the first five chapters, not all of the chapters, but there's some really interesting um, verses that mention the Holy Spirit and just his role in the work that God's doing. And um, it seemed right in line with with where we needed to be. So this is part me just sharing what's on my heart for our church right now and and part getting back into our reading schedule of uh, Second Corinthians. Uh, As I mentioned in the email, um, we'll get back. We'll uh, do uh, start reading Galatians this week and we'll study. We'll I'll teach on Galatians for the next two weeks at church. Uh, so read it, you know, as many times as you can between now and and church and uh, next week. I'm looking forward to getting back into this stuff because I the uh, the periods of my life that have been marked by the most growth. I can remember being associated with really deep studies in some of Paul's letters, and just there are passages in Paul's letters that have just become just absolute life verses for me. Life passages, and actually a couple of them we're going to look at tonight. So, so much good stuff in Second Corinthians. Um, really broadly, I will say this about Second Corinthians: that Paul is, you know, how First Corinthians you kind of are are plopped down into the middle of a conversation that's been going on. Second Corinthians is even more advanced. Like this is sort of the tail end. Paul is kind of wrapping things up and saying, "Hey guys, we've been going at it." Let me just say these things and kind of leave it with you. Um, they have some, <laughs> they have some accusations against Paul, and are accusing him of uh, not having the right motives, trying to be overly uh, controlling, to lording it over them. Um, and he says, "Listen, you know, you can say what you want, and you can listen to whoever you want to listen to, but but let me tell you." my deepest heart for you. And that's really the first nine chapters of, uh, or at least seven chapters of second Corinthians are him just saying, here's how I live. And, and the reason I live that way is because of the gospel, because I've been transformed by the message of the crucified Jesus. And every day I live in that reality. And you know, that upside down way of the kingdom that he really, he really brilliantly unpacked in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. He says, let me, just, <laughs> let, me, let me show you how it goes. You can't, look at, you can't look at your day-to-day life and judge it based on worldly standards and say, well, this, this, this Jesus thing must not be really working. You know? This just feels like failure. This feels like nothing's happening. This feels like pain. This feels like suffering. What's, I thought we were supposed to be Uh, done with all of that all of this you know bodily stuff 
the, the hard reality of living in this world in this present age. I thought we were done with that. I thought we were supposed to be leaving that behind. And Paul says, no, that's not the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that in the midst of this life, you can live in such a way that you are actually living in the new creation already, even though it's still on its way into the earth, right? We are still, there, there will be a day when all things become new, but in, in a way, all things have become new. The new creation has begun, and we are walking evidence of that. Paul says, I'm walking evidence of that. Does it mean that there's no more hardship? Absolutely not. But it does mean that in that hardship, we experience both the death and the resurrection power and life of Jesus. That's why he can say things later in the, in the letter like, his strength is made perfect in weakness. Right? He talks about his, this thorn in the flesh. He says this, this, this affliction. He says, well, that was given to me. And if you see it right, if you've got your kingdom lenses on, if you've got your cross lenses on, you can understand how suffering is actually a very valuable thing and, and, and serves a very important purpose in our lives. So he deals with a lot of that. The way that he lives his life and his suffering as an apostle of God, as a church planter, he says... Yeah, they're suffering all the time. But that by no means is that a, a reason to give up and to say this must, all be, this must all be false. You know, we closed out our study of 1 Corinthians by looking at chapter 15. And he says, yeah, if, if Christ is not raised, you're on to something. If Christ is not raised, this, this is a pretty foolish way to live. But the resurrection of Jesus changes all of that. It changes it completely. And now the suffering and the the sacrifice that's required by those whose lives have been transformed by the gospel is just a a manifestation of of the the life of Jesus. Um, Okay, so that's kind of, he, he, I hope that you've read this and and maybe we can come back to it sometime because it's so valuable. It is so valuable in um, helping us make sense of the, the weird tension between the way that things are now and the life that's to come, the, the life of the age to come and how those are intention in our, in our lives until the last day. But it doesn't mean that we just sort of, it doesn't mean that we just sort of limp through life and hope to escape out the other end after death and, and be taken out of this terrible place. He says, no, the, the, the reason that these things are happening is because God is renewing, that the work that you're doing is actually bringing life into the world. Jesus' death actually set off something that is now spreading and filling the earth with the glory of God. So stick with it. Stick with what you're doing. All right. So he opens the letter. Um, so anyway, the, uh, t- tonight I just want to I, I try and focus on, and, and it, I won't, I will fail. So I ask for forgiveness in advance. I want to try and focus just on four uh, verses here. Um, that mention the Holy Spirit and just kind of meditate on the truth about the Holy Spirit that we can, that we can glean from this letter. Oh, where should we start? Let's start in chapter 3. Um, 
it's hard to dive into to one place in this letter because it's it's one long one long flow of thought. But he begins in chapter three. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Which must have been uh, which must have been a argument that they were making against him. That hey, how do we know that what you're saying is valid? How do we know that this is the right way to do it? We need we need someone. We need a letter of recommendation, right? We don't know whether what what whether you have the truth versus some of these other people who are going around preaching. How do we know that what you're saying is valid? And they, they, their their accusation against him was the only recommendation is, that is from your own is from yourself, right? How can if you commend yourself? How do we know what you're saying is true? Which reminds me of some kind of accusation that Jesus received, right? You bear witness about yourself. How do we know that your testimony is true? And Jesus uh, is able to navigate that with, with a lot of rhetorical force in, in the Gospel of John. But he says, do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation from, to you or from you? He says, guys, you are the letter of recommendation. Remember the year and a half? Again, remember he was there for a year and a half and he, 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 he planted a church there. And that church was planted and it was real. The Spirit did a real work in those hearts. And he says, listen, you guys are our letter of recommendation. You are our letter from Christ delivered by us. Not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And this isn't one of the main points, but he mentions the Holy Spirit there. Basically, he's saying that this, this thing that has happened among you is real, and you know it's real. Because it's been written on your hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came among you and is still active among you. And this thing wasn't like Moses' tablets where, here's what you need to do. Thou shalt not, and thou shalt not. No, the Spirit himself has written these things on your heart. Which was one of the great hopes of the Old Testament. That the law, one day, this is one of the great hopes of the, of the prophets, that the law would one day be, not be this external thing that we all had to, had to try and live up to, but that the law itself would be written on our hearts. And we wouldn't have to try to do the law, but that we would become what the law was pointing to. Jesus himself was that. So he says, the Spirit has written this ministry on your hearts. The Spirit has done something real in your hearts. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Guys, no, we're we're not commending ourselves, and we would never want to do that. We would never just want to... Say, no, take our word for it. We, we're, we're legit. He says, but, but we can only say what's true. And that is that we've received the Holy Spirit and we've been given this ministry. And he says, uh, God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So that's the first big, I think, truth about the Holy Spirit. Is that there is now a new age in which we live. 
There was an age of the law. There was a ministry of the law, and he calls it the ministry of death. And he goes on to say that that, the giving of the law was an incredibly glorious occasion, right? So glorious that people couldn't even look at it. When Moses came down the mountain with the tablets and his face was glowing, they were afraid because the glory of God was on his life at the giving of the law. And he says, but, but that was temporary at best. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, it had a shelf life and it was for a purpose and it was moving toward a greater purpose. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Think about the, the glorious giving of the law and, and that whole uh, seen with Moses and his the face of his radiant face of Moses, he spoke with the Lord face to face, and he says, "And that was just that was just phase one, or maybe it was like phase three at that point. <laughs> that was just phase three of a plan that has now reached its fulfillment, and that's what the Spirit has written on your hearts, the new covenant. This is what it was all headed toward. This is what those tablets." We're trying to get us to. The ministry of the Spirit is glorious. He calls it the, the letter that kills. The law. As, as he says in Romans, that the, the law imprisons everything under sin. Right? And the law's purpose, and this, is, this gets, you know, Paul is, as Peter says, Paul's letters. And so there's some things in there that are hard to understand. This is one of those things that, that can get really hard to understand. Like, what, what does he mean about the law? Is it good or is it bad? Paul, just tell us straight up. Is it good or is it bad? And he, he's like, not really either, <laughs> right? It was for a purpose. It was for a purpose. It had a purpose. And one of those purposes was to imprison everything under sin so that all sin would be heaped on those who had the law and so that eventually... God could punish sin in the flesh in the person of the, the Messiah because he represented, he was the representative head of Israel. Okay? We don't have time to get into that tonight. But he says, we've now reached the fulfillment of the plan. What the, all of that was pointing to has now happened by the Holy Spirit. And as Tommy preached on last week, that the curtain's been torn. Right? There's not, there's not a place where Moses goes to speak with the Lord face to face, and then he comes back out and his face is glowing. They're like, oh my goodness. We can't even look at the guy that went to look at Jesus, that went to look at, at God. He has so much glory. He says, no, the Spirit is in all of you. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. What we're living in, he says, church, what we're living in now with the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has been poured out, what we're living in now is so far greater than what Moses was experiencing, than what Moses participated in, that when you, when you look at that, it looks like it doesn't have any glory at all. All right, so this is the first and probably the kind of the, the most big picture truth about the Holy Spirit. 
that I want us to take out of 2 Corinthians is that the Spirit under the new covenant has been poured out on all people. And that is an incredibly glorious truth. It's power. It's, it's greater power than, than they, they witnessed on Mount Sinai. And people were scared for their lives, right? The Spirit has come. The new covenant has been enacted. If what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent? And this is the new covenant, and this is it, right? This isn't a phase that's going to be, uh, that's going to be moved beyond, right? This is what all of the phases we're building toward. Okay, so that's the first thing. It's that the Spirit has ushered in and is, is one of the primary evidences that the new covenant has been, has been established, right? Because the Spirit and God's presence, God dwelling amongst his people, which was the great hope of the prophets when they were saying there's going to be a new covenant and God's going to be in the midst of his people. He is. Now he is by the Holy Spirit. He has enacted the new covenant. And we now have access. We now have glorious uh, access to God by the Spirit. And it says the letter kills, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Right? So yes, we were dead in our sins, and the law is there to remind us that all have gone astray, that there's no way that, that anyone on their own, in, in their independent spirits, in their rebellion, can become what God created them to be. And the law is proof of that. You cannot be who God created you to be outside of of fellowship with him. All right, so that's the big, the, the, the spirit is the sign of the new covenant. And the spirit has brought life. The Spirit has brought life, and, and the, the first fruits of that was the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus defeated death, that was the sign that, the, that we are now living in new covenant days. We are now living in new covenant days. And the ways of the old covenant are no longer, are no longer uh, it's not that they're bad, because they, they were very good, and we wouldn't be in the new covenant if it wasn't for the old covenant. Um. But we've moved, we've moved past it in a glorious way. And that'll be an important truth to carry over into our study of Galatians because Paul is saying, why are you going backwards? You know, that's really the big point in Galatians. Why are you turning back to Moses when what's far greater than Moses has arrived? Right? We can't force people to go back there. We've crossed, a, we've crossed a threshold that you can't go back, right? You cannot unbake the cake, right? He is... Here. And there's no way to live life now outside of Jesus, outside of the Messiah, and outside of the freedom that, uh, that he's, he's uh, won for us. Okay. It's, it's, uh, it's our friend. All right, so since we have a hope, we're still in chapter 3. We are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face 
so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Even if you go, we'll go back to and read Exodus, you can't, when you, before you read it through the lens of Jesus and the gospel, it's not going to make sense. And, and you're going to get stuck in the same old ways. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. All right, and this brings us to our second point on the Holy Spirit. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Um, that's kind of a mini point. The Lord is the Spirit. Right? We often think of right, Jesus Christ as Lord, and we worship the man Jesus. But here it says, the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. And that Lord, who was Lord of the Old Testament, who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is who the Holy Spirit is. The Lord is the Spirit. But here's the big point that I want to focus on. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay, so the first one is the Spirit has ushered in the new covenant, and that new covenant has brought to life. The Spirit gives life. As the Spirit has written uh, on our hearts, and the Spirit is life. And the second point is that the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay, life, and secondly, freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, who is the Spirit. Right? We now can, can interact with God by the Spirit with unveiled faces. We don't have to go through all of the, the, uh, all of the things that you see in the Old Testament to kind of protect people from interacting with the Spirit. You know, the Spirit was like, if the Spirit shows up, it's a very fearful thing. But now it says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. You can't see the glory of God and live in the Old Testament. Now, no veil beholding the glory of the Lord. Full force. As we do that, it says we are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. Okay, so the, the second point with freedom, and then the third point here is just in this is verse right here. It's transformation. The Spirit brings life. The Spirit sets free. And the Spirit transforms. Transforms us. From one degree of glory to another. It's step by step. Right? As we behold the glory of God by the Spirit, we are, our, our lives in this life are being transformed. Okay? It's not like we get saved and then we live out the rest of our lives hoping to go away somewhere where then we'll become like Jesus. Because part of Paul's big point is that, no, what happens every day in your life is important. 
God is working. He is at work. Whether you acknowledge it or not, he is at work to transform you into the image of Jesus. And it's not going to look maybe like you think it's going to look. For example, we were beaten up and left for dead. We were shipwrecked. We were doing all these things. But let me tell you, we are walking with Jesus. We are living his life. And he's living out his life through us. And it's an amazing thing. We're being transformed into the same image. He says, therefore, and, and don't, don't acknowledge a chapter break. It's the same flow of thought here. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, he's made us sufficient. He's the one that set us to doing this. And it looks strange, but we've been given the spirit and we're being transformed to his image. But we experience all sorts of hardship and, and accusation, like from yourselves. You know? And well, why do we do all this? Because we're beholding the glory of God and being transformed to his image. And so he says, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We don't lose heart. His whole point is that when you you live the life following in the footsteps of Jesus, there's all sorts of opportunities to to lose heart. There's all sorts of of temptations to lose heart. Later in verse 5, he says, we are always of good courage. You need to remind yourself to be of good courage. He says, we, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We're not going to try and sugarcoat any of this. We're not going to try and kind of manipulate you into being converts of this new trendy religion that we have. He says, no, we're going to tell it like it is. Jesus died and then he rose again. And we're living in a new age now. And if you will leave your old life and, and, and uh, forsake your old life and... Uh, allow him to to bury that old man then what will what will be raised is a new a totally new man a new human being and you'll begin to live out the life and the new creation from that moment on and yes it's going to reach its fulfillment at the end of the age and at the final resurrection but from now until when you when your body perishes you are being transformed to his glory you're being prepared Verse 7, he says, we have this treasure, this amazing truth. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Yes, our bodies still ache. Every day, my body, I found a new hurt in my body. Um, I went bowling a couple nights ago with the youth group, and my hip has never been the same. <laughs> I don't think it ever will be. We have it in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Right? Your weakness is actually a testament to how powerful God really is. That he can fill the earth of his glory through we human beings. Imagine that. He can fill the earth with his glory through we human beings. Wasn't that always the plan, though? Wasn't that why he created them? Walk with me, and though you are very limited... In light of who I am, though you, if you walk with me, you will be a blessing to the earth, and you'll fill it, and you'll multiply, and it will be a glorious thing. You'll bear my image. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. 
Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always, listen to this. This is just mind-blowing stuff. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This weakness is a means to the glory of God being manifested in your body. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Um, Again, he says in verse 16, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The work that has begun in you by the Holy Spirit causes you to live in such a way that your life is laid down in love for Christ and for others. And as that work happens, you're in, you, you are becoming more and more and more the human being that you were created to be. As your body gets weaker and weaker and weaker, your Christ-likeness gets greater and greater and greater and greater. And so it is a transformation. It's upside down. If you look at it through worldly eyes, it looks like we're just, man, we're just kind of fading into nothing. Well, what's happening is that we are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, it, 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 it has to do with how you, how you view your life. You can't look, you can't just give a, a superficial reading of your life and an evaluation of your life. It cannot be by your eyes, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. These trials are, are going to go away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Then he talks about and this, this will bring us to the fifth point, or the fourth point, sorry. So, spirit brings life, spirit brings freedom, frees us from bondage. You know, he's, he's talking about Moses in that section. I'm sure that freedom there is referring to the exodus, the freedom from slavery, the coming out of that old oppressive way of life and into the new nation that God is forming. He says, where the spirit is, we are being brought out of death and into life. Chapter 5. We know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. So he talks about our bodies. Remember, he talks a lot about the body in 1 Corinthians. And he's going to continue talking about some things about the body. Remember when we talked about the resurrection of the body being such a core tenet of the gospel? that uh, what they were facing in, in 1 Corinthians, the philosophies of the day, both Stoicism and Epicureanism, had different views of the body, but they both rested on a, on a false view of the body, which is basically the body is lesser. The body doesn't really matter. What matters is the spirit, right? And what goes on in the body... Um, it doesn't really matter. Okay, so, but, so you take that as the backdrop, and Epicureans went one way, Stoics went the other way. Epicureanisms would indulge their bodies, 
Stoics would bring their bodies into subjection, right, and, and, and be ascetically, you know, disciplined. And he says it's, it's not, that's not really the, the, the gospel, right? The gospel is that you are now a new creation and that your body can now be what it was meant to be all along, which was not, you know, a discardable shell so that your soul, that's the, the more valuable part of you, can go and do soul things. Now he says, you were created as a being with a body. And so he's going to talk more about the body. And then, so the resurrection body, he says, is like our physical bodies, except instead of, instead of a soul, we have, we're spiritual bodies. So that's kind of a, a strange idea to, to wrap your mind around. But he's, he's coming back to that idea here. He says, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Right? Notice how he doesn't say longing to leave and go to our heavenly dwelling. He says longing to put it on. It's coming. It's, we're being transformed. Right? Heaven's coming down to earth. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. Even more humanly. Humanly in the real sense. Not, but not in the Adam sense, but in the Jesus sense. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So the resurrection body, we, we have this longing for. We know, yeah, we're wasting away. But we know that what's to come isn't a disembodied eternity. What's to come is the death of our physical bodies, but then the resurrection to the real and lasting and eternal bodies that God intends for us to have. That's real hope, right? That's hope you can really get excited about. And guess what? It is the Holy Spirit who is a guarantee and a preview of the resurrection body. We can now be bodies filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's awfully close to what eternity is going to be like, isn't it? It's not fulfilled yet. It's not complete yet. We're still in our mortal bodies. But we get to be bodies filled with the Spirit now. And that is, he says, the Spirit. It's what we're being prepared for, that eternal weight of glory. Right? Right? The weight of glory is the resurrection of the body. The weight of glory isn't flying off somewhere with no bodies. I like in The Great Divorce, I think C.S. Lewis really nails this idea. In The Great Divorce, remember when they get there and they're walking around and they're noticing how like the, the, the grass is so grassy that it hurts their feet. Like it's not, it's not this spirit, they're not walking around on clouds. They're walking down on grass, but it's like grass, like serious grass, right? And, and they have to adjust to the grass because it's so grass, right? That's, that's what we're destined for, right? We see the earth and we're like, this is a glorious thing, beauty of creation. And then we get worried. We're like, well, is God really going to like just, just zap all this and we're going to go somewhere else with no sunsets? It's like, no, it's going to be Everything glorious that you see now, it's going to be even more that. That's what we're destined for. 
when, when heaven and earth are one and you don't even need a son because you got something way better, right? That's real hope. Okay, this is where I said I was going to get off track. But the Spirit is now, it's, it's where we can get a preview of that. Now, we can understand and have a sense of what, we don't have to wonder what heaven's like. People living in community filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what heaven's like. People enjoying the glory of God in the place that he has created for us to live in, that's heaven. People praising God for his beauty and his infinite wisdom and his diversity and the way that he has created. I mean, the psalmist, how many psalms say, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name way off in heaven somewhere that I don't really have a good mental picture of? No, how awesome is your name in all the earth? Holy, 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 Isaiah said. The the seraphim said, and Isaiah overheard, when he got his vision of God, he got this heavenly vision. They said, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it still is. And it will always be. And he's no more going to do away with the earth in some of the ways that, you know, he's not going to do away with the whole project of earth. He's going to do away with earth as much as he did away with the nation of Israel. Which is basically brought it to completely nothing and totally renewed it and transformed it into what it was always meant to be, right? He's going to do with earth what he does with our bodies. They're going to go into the ground. They're going to decay. They're going to reach the end of their lifespan in this age. But on the other side of that, there's something that's even better and eternal. But this is really cool stuff to think about because... When it comes down to it, what really is your hope? <laughs> what do you put your hope in? You know, that's the question on everybody's, in the depths of their hearts. That's the question that nobody wants to answer. That's why the people whip out their phones at stoplights, because they don't want to, what happens when all this is over? Right? That's the question that everybody wants to avoid. We've got the answer. Right? And it's, 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 not, it's not clouds and harps. It's the best of what you see here, better than you can even imagine. But that's why he says, so we are always of good courage. Because we, we, we know what it's like. We, we live life by the Spirit. He has been given to us as the guarantee. As the guarantee. So that's why we have always, that's why we're always of good courage. And he says, so yeah, we're living in this weird time where this isn't our home and we want to go be with the Lord. But eventually this is going to be it, right? Heaven and earth are going to be one. So we live in this gap. We've, we've got, we're, we're here, but he's there and we, we don't see him anymore. He says, we, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Right? We interact with God by faith. We don't have the man Jesus in our presence anymore. And so we walk by faith. And there are times, he says, we would rather be away from the body. Who wouldn't want to escape the troubles of this present age? But he says, that's not really the point. The point is this, whether we are 
at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. That's going to be the basis of our judgment. What you do in the body after I sent the Spirit and, and enabled you to be holy humans, what did you do in the body after you received the gospel? So Paul's really whole point to the Corinthian church is that, hey, you guys are letting far too many things slide because you're not, you're not thinking highly enough of your bodies. <laughs> You're not understanding. This is what God created. He formed man. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it was very good. And it's what he's committed to. And it's going to continue to be very good. All right. So those four things. The spirit ushers in the new covenant. The covenant of life. Um, the spirit brings freedom. The spirit transforms. The spirit is an agent of transformation. And the, the Spirit is the guarantee of what's to come. The guarantee and the preview. The down payment. All right? So I think some, some good questions to ask ourselves and to reflect on um, would be this. The first one related to the new covenant that's not based in the letter, which kills, but that's based in the Spirit, which gives life. Um, do we live under the ministry of death? Meaning, do we, see, do we see what God has desired for us to be, but do we, live as if, do we live as if that's what he expects us to be and expects us to become? Right? Do we live under the burden of I should, I ought to, I should do better. I should be better. Do we live under that burden? Because if so, that's the ministry of death. If you feel that the, the call of God on your life to holiness and righteousness is one that really kills you, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're doing it wrong. Then your life is just a series of good intentions that always end in failure. That's exactly the predicament that the law was meant to create in us. Romans 7. Yeah, we see it and it's good, but why can't I do it? It's the ministry of death. The law was meant to lead us to the end of ourselves. Great. Welcome to the end of yourself. Are you ready for the Holy Spirit to come into your life? Are you ready for the new covenant? I mean, we're familiar with the effect of the law. Man, it's just... Yeah, I, that's, what, that's what I should be. My conscience has convicted me. That's what I need to be. But if we're not living in the Spirit, it's a, it's, it's a letter that's killing you. It's a command that's killing you. But he says the Spirit gives life. What does that mean? It means that every command of God is now a promise. That's one way you can think of it. Every command of the Old Testament when the Spirit writes the law on our hearts, it means that every one of those commands has now become an empowering act of God in your life 
to do that thing. I love the, I love the, uh, I just remembered this. Um, I love the ending of Hebrews. Right? Uh, The very last uh, chapter of Hebrews, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, this new covenant that we live in, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. When you, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the working within you of that which pleases God. You don't receive a command to go out and attempt to please God. You receive the equipment and the empowerment to be pleasing to God. Does that make sense? And it's, it's, it gives life. Whenever you hear a challenge... Whenever you hear, you read the Old Covenant, the veil isn't there anymore. You read the Old Covenant and you go, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not covet. All right, better not covet. No. You go, why would I murder? He is a God of life. Why would I covet? I have everything I need in him. Right? And they're not rules that beat you down. And you're not in the ministry of death anymore. And the letter's not killing you anymore. The Spirit is giving you life. With every command of God, he gives you the life and the power to do it. Luther says that the, uh, that the, uh, the law says, do this, and it is never done. Some of us live in the world of, do this, but it's never done. Right? And we need to come out of that ministry of death and into the ministry of the Spirit who gives life. Gives life. Uh, secondly, freedom. Are you in bondage? Are you stuck? Are you enslaved to something more powerful than you? The situation with the Israelites in Egypt is one that they could not, they could not have gotten themselves out of. They were enslaved. They, I mean, and, and it was meticulous, and it was systematic. And there was going to be no escaping that bondage had not God come and brought them out, delivered them with his mighty hand. That is the kind of freedom that those who have the Holy Spirit walk in. Freedom from things that you could never free yourself from. Freedom from things that want your death, that steal, kill, and destroy the real life within you. Freedom from taskmasters that when you complain about how, you know, the severity of the tasks that you're given, they respond by making them more severe. And God says, I hear their groaning. I'm going to come down. And free them. Deliver them. With a mighty hand. And an outstretched arm. The Holy Spirit is the mighty hand of God. The outstretched hand of God. To deliver you. The Holy Spirit is the wind that blows back the waters. So that you can walk through on dry ground. 
The Holy Spirit is the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The pillar, the fire that comes between you and the enemies that would seek to enslave you once again as you're on your way out. Right? This is what the Holy Spirit is in our lives. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Transformation. Are you on pause? <laughs> Did, were you saved and then just stayed there? Or were you saved and had a year of great growth and then just kind of just kind of froze? The Spirit transforms us not in one season of our life, not in that great experience we had back in college. The Holy Spirit transforms us from one degree of glory to the next and is never done. There's transformation for you this week. There's transformation for you today. This is a word sometimes for families in the thick of raising children because the days kind of all blur together and it's like, wow, a whole year has gone by again. What happened this year? I don't even know. Right? It's one degree of glory to the next. All right? and you, are, are you stuck on one degree of glory? He wants to take you to the next. He wants to take you to the next. He wants to unpause your transformation into the image of Jesus. And then finally, uh, on the spirit being the guarantee of what's to come. Uh, do you have hope? Do you live with hope? Do you revisit that hope in the midst of trial? In the midst of, of hardship? In the midst of the, sacrifice that God's, the sacrifices that God calls you to, uh, to participate in? The ways that he calls you to lay down your life? Do you do it cheerfully because you have such a hope? And you see all these things as, as what Paul says, light momentary afflictions. It's light momentary afflictions. There's something, there's something coming that is far, it far surpasses anything that we have. Do we really have hope? Do we really believe that the best is yet to come? Because that's, that's what Paul constantly encouraged his own, himself with. Hey, I don't lose heart because I know that my body is going to be raised and that the life in eternity is going to be far better and far more glorious than even the best of life right now. All right, so there's four, four questions for us. You know, and these are all, again, these are all where the Spirit operates. The Spirit is the one that gives life. The Spirit is the one that frees. The Spirit is the one that transforms. And the Spirit is the one that gives us the guarantee of the life of the age to come and allows us to participate in it uh, in kind of, a, kind of a demo mode right now. Full features coming soon. You know. Amen? Amen? All right. I can't, I can't. I just cannot get get myself rid of that fifty minute mark. I thought it was thirty minutes. All right. Well, um, 
table is set. And um, this, is the, this is the body and the blood of the one who, who died and was raised back to life and was seen by many witnesses in his resurrection form and said, here I am. Go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. But he said also to do this, to do this as often as we, as we gather, to do it in remembrance of him. Remember me. And I think that when, when Paul, you know, thought about his own life, thought about his own tra- uh, trials, thought about his hardships and afflictions, thought about the thorn in his flesh, I'm sure he remembered Jesus. Let me remember Jesus. And this is where we get our hope that, that, uh, um, that we would participate with him in a death like his, that we would also participate with him in a resurrection like his. So this is our weekly reminder that we are called to follow, to imitate, and to be filled with the life of Jesus. And uh, we proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. Um, so maybe one of those ways in which uh, the Holy Spirit operates in Second Corinthians. Maybe one of those is, is really big on your heart. And if so, you know, I'm going to invite you to, after you come take communion, um, if you just want uh, to pray over one of those areas, I'll be up here, and uh, I'd love to pray for you. And then uh, after communion, we'll just have a little bit of time of prayer and open worship, uh, see if the Holy Spirit wants to, to minister to us in any way. Um, all right.